reach out, uh, reach out from under a chair, bring, bring it out there, and turn to page 1290, James chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 of this letter by the Apostle James. James 4, 1 through 12. Here's God's word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourself therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The word of the Lord. Let me start with three little vignettes. Uh, All true stories. A couple I know pulled their teenage daughter out of a Christian cheer team because the coaches of this team were very demeaning and, and really basically verbally abusive toward the girls on the team. Now these, now these coaches, you know what they're doing? They're, they're spreading gossip about my friends, this family, to all the other parents. It's a Christian cheer team. What should my friends do about it? I have friends in another state who are in conflict about their adult son. He is a married man, but he won't look for a decent job. He's gotten himself and his family in a lot of debt, so he keeps coming to his parents, asking them to bail him out, give him more money. The mom feels obligated to do that. So she's been actually draining their retirement account of money to give to her son, while the dad is getting more and more stressed out and resentful and angry. But he's torn. He's torn. Should he sacrifice and help out his son? Or should he insist that his wife stop sending him their retirement money? 
And finally, I ran into a man not long ago who left this church some years back because he was hurt by someone who said something to him. And I said to this guy, did you talk to this fellow member about the situation? And his reply was, no, I don't like to rock the boat. I'd rather just leave quietly and not cause trouble. Well, these are just a few examples. We could, and I'm sure you could as well, tell many other stories about how we get into conflict with each other. I want to stress that in each of these cases, we're talking here about followers of Jesus. Followers of Jesus who are at odds with each other. You remember what some of you were around back in these days when Rodney King said this during the 1992 riots in South Central L.A.? People, can we all get along? Remember that? And we want to say, no, Rodney, I'm sorry, we can't get along. Like I said last week, we have a sin nature. It ruined our relationship vertically with God, but it also continually ruins our relationships horizontally with other human beings. That's why Jesus died on the cross. To reconcile us, not only to God, but to one another. But in spite of our pre-election for conflict, believers in Jesus are called to be peacemakers. That's the whole point of this series. As a matter of fact, we didn't read the last couple of verses of chapter 3 of James. But if you please do still have your Bible open, if you'll look up above chapter 4 to the last verse of chapter 3, you see that James says that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peace is not just something that we are meant to feel. It's something that we are meant to make. question is how. How are we going to do that? Well, next week, come back next week, and I'm going to uh, give you more practical guidance on steps that one should take if he or she is in conflict with another person. What do you do about that? We'll talk about that next week. But today we need to understand, before we get to that, we need to understand two very fundamental truths. And one is the reason that we don't get along, and the other is the prerequisite for peace. So that's our plan for today. The reason we don't get along and the prerequisite for peace. So let's dive into that first point there. Why don't we get along? Why don't we? Well, the answer is in verse 1 of James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Asks James. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? James couldn't be clearer. The source of the strife between human beings resides here in the human heart. Now look, there are times when good people are going to differ. Right? I mean, there are times when disputes will arise because of different opinions and different perspectives and ideologies and even theologies, backgrounds, and so on. We know that. That's just simply normal part of life. James is not talking about those kinds of differences. Now, he's talking here about the intramural battles and the fights and the squabbles and arguments that occur between God's people that end up splitting relationships and ending friendships and ruining marriages and dividing churches and ultimately spoiling our witness before the world. 
That's what James has in mind here. The Greek word for quarrels in verse 1 is polemos. You can hear the word that we use sometimes, polemics, in that Greek word. And most of the time in the New Testament, you know what it means? It means war. War. What's the goal of a war? To win. So James is talking about those times when we want to defeat the other person or the other side or the other group. We want to win. That's what he means by quarrel. And verse 1 says that the reason that we want to win is that our hearts are ruled by our passions rather than by love for God and neighbor. The word passions is the Greek word hedone. Hedone, does that remind you of anything? Hedonism, that's where we get the word hedonism from the Greek word hedone. What's a hedonist? A hedonist is someone who pursues his or her passions as their main goal in life. If you don't like the word passions, you can substitute the word lusts in there. Some translations use lusts instead. We're talking about self-centered desires. That's what causes these, these quarrels, these wars that we have with other people. See, when you're ruled by selfish desires, when, when you are ruled by your lusts and you're thinking only about winning, other people are either obstacles to be removed or avoided, or they are objects to be used. Now, not all desires are bad. Don't hear James condemning desires in general. You might desire a husband or a wife if you're a single person. You might desire a better job than the one you have now. You might desire to win the next soccer game or watch your favorite TV show or have lunch over at Four Rivers tomorrow or something like that. Those are good desires. But when a desire becomes a demand, see, that's when people get hurt. Look at verse 2. I think James is telling us this. You desire and do not have. See, that desire has now become a demand. I, I must have this thing. You desire and do not have, so what do you do? You murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. See, that word desire there in verse 2 is a Greek word that almost always means a selfish fleshy desire rather than a good desire. It's really synonymous with the word covet or lust after or long for, something like that. So we're, we're beyond the category of normal, good, harmless desires and we're into demands. So you know what we're really talking about here today? Idolatry. James doesn't use the word idolatry in this passage, but he uses words associated with idolatry. An idol is a desire turned into a demand. An idol is anything you must have instead of God in order to be happy, in order to have meaning in life or fulfillment in life or to feel that you've got life figured out. It could be a good thing. But as Tim Keller often reminds us, an idol is a good thing turned into an ultimate thing. As I said, James doesn't use the word idol or idolatry in here, but notice verse 4. He calls these readers adulteresses. You adulterous people. That's a word associated 
with idolatry again and again in the Old Testament. God called his people through his prophets to forsake their idols because they had been unfaithful to him. They had committed spiritual adultery. They had bowed down before wood and stone and gold and silver and called those things God. That's adultery as far as God is concerned. And then in verse 8, James goes on to say, Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Double-minded. See, he's talking about people who want it both ways. An adulteress or an idol worshiper is someone with a divided heart. Sure, I want God in my life. Yeah, definitely. But I must have financial security or I'm undone. Sure, I, I want God to be first in my heart, but I must be popular or I'm worth nothing. Verse 4 says you can't have it both ways. If you're a friend of the world, you are an enemy of God. That's how serious this whole matter of idolatry is. An idol, you see, is a God substitute. It's a God substitute. God says... Have me and live. An idol says, no, 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 have me and live. So God substitute. And anything can be an idol, as I said earlier. Maybe in your life your idol is beauty. And you say to yourself sometimes, life only has meaning or I'm only worth something if I am beautiful, if I am thin, if I have the newest fashions. Maybe your idol is approval. And life only has meaning for you, or you only have worth if you are liked by this particular person or by this group of people. Your idol might be status, or sensual pleasure, or success, or money. It might be a skill. It could be your talent. It might be pornography. Your idol might be helping people. Do you know anyone like that? Who must be helping people to feel that they're worth anything. I only have value, they might say, when lots of people are depending on me. It could be your kids. Do you ever catch yourself saying something like, life only has meaning, I only have value, I only have worth if my children become missionaries, if my children memorize lots of Bible verses, if my children stay out of trouble and never smoke pot, then life is good. Maybe it's your Bible knowledge. I mean, it really doesn't matter what it is. You're a spiritual adulterer if you look to that thing or that person for life. Martin Luther said, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. And notice the progression here. This is such a good uh, insight that we get from Ken Sandy in his book, The Peacemaker. Notice the progression in James 4. Once a desire has become a demand, you will punish the person who blocks that desire. That's why James says in verse 2, you murder. He doesn't literally mean you're going to go out killing people, but Jesus taught us that Hating someone in your heart, thinking evil, calling someone else a fool in your heart is the same as murder. And then punishing turns into judging. He says in verse 11 that you judge your brother. Who are you to judge your neighbor? He says in verse 12, uh, who are you to judge your neighbor? You speak evil against one another. 
See how destructive these idols are? And it all starts with your passions that are at war within you. Your desires that have become demands. You know, we live in an age that's dominated by the language of pop psychology. And we've gotten used to it. Now, I was a major in psychology, and we get a lot of good insights from the world of psychology. But one thing that most psychologists won't talk about is idolatry. They'll talk about motivations or drives or needs or something like that. They'll say that behavior is driven by what you need, by what your motives are underneath. Maybe they think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs and so on. You need security, you need love, you need self-actualization. But actually the Bible doesn't use that kind of language. Instead, the Bible says that behavior is not driven by what you need. It's by what you worship. Your behavior is driven by what you worship in your hearts. That's why the Bible has so much to say about the human heart. Proverbs 4.23, the heart is the wellspring of life. Everything you do and think and say comes ultimately out of your heart and what you worship. Psalmist David says in Psalm 51, Lord, created me a clean heart. Why did he pray that? Because he knew that his life, his outward life, would ultimately be shaped by the cleanliness, the purity, or the impurity of his heart. Proverbs 27, 19, as water reflects the face, so the heart of man reflects the man. And Jesus said, out of the heart the mouth speaks. See, what are we... What are we learning here in these scriptures? We're learning that the heart is the motivational control center of your life. So whatever your heart cherishes will guide your behavior. You will worship something. You and I are inherently religious creatures. On the throne of our hearts is either God or something or someone else. You will serve whatever that is. You will sacrifice for whatever that is. You will think about whatever that is. You'll trust in it. You'll look to it for deliverance. See, you are inherently a worshiper. And whatever you worship, whatever you cherish in your heart, will guide your life, your choices, your behavior, your lifestyle. We've been, uh, if, you, if you're on the, uh, the, the church's two-year Bible reading plan this past week, who we read about? Samson. Samson is a study in idolatry. Samson was a guy who was ruled by his passions. He had many desires that he turned into demands. He saw a Philistine woman and he said to his mom and dad, get that woman for, her, for me, I want her for my wife. And the rest of his life was basically a tragedy until the very end caused by his idols. Let's... Uh, I wanted to try this. Let's look at this diagram. And this is going to be something that I hope will help you to visualize what we're learning here about the heart and about idolatry. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about two people. This could be a husband and a wife. Uh, it could be two friends. Uh, it could be people here at church, people at work, people at school. But whatever the case, they have a situation. Okay, We call it a situation. They're, they have a fight. Let's, for the sake of argument, let's talk about uh, a husband and wife who are fighting about money. And uh, here's what usually happens when we have conflict with another person. 
the uh, one person will attack the other. And here this husband is angry at his wife. He blames her. He might even insult her. What is the wife going to typically do? She will defend herself. She'll protect herself through excuses or tears or self-pity or fear. or She'll just be hurt. She'll just act hurt, right? So we're not getting anywhere. We're just conflicted. We're having this fight. Uh, but many times what the wife will turn around and do is attack him back by accusing him or scowling. She might dredge up the past and talk a little bit about you know, things he's done in the past and so on. And what he'll do is try to defend himself. He'll protect himself, right? He'll turn to things like uh, excuses, maybe, or sadness. He'll just get sad. He'll just sort of retreat and get isolated. Self-pity. He might get up and leave. He'll act hurt. Or whatever. These are just examples. You can probably think of things that you do when you get hurt, when you attack, when you feel like you need to defend yourself, and so on. How much better would it be if in the midst of this fight, let's say the husband takes the initiative and he says, I'm going to look at my own heart here. And what he does is he tries to look at what he's wanting from his wife. Uh, what is he worshiping? Maybe it's control. Maybe he'll say to himself, uh, how crazy would this be? Maybe he'll stop and say, honey, you know what's going on in my heart right now? I just want to control you. I just want to win. I am so sorry. And so he might think of other things. You know, there might be more than one idol in his life. Um, put those lines on there. Go. But wouldn't it be wonderful if the husband would stop right there in the middle of this argument and say, I want to tell you what I'm, what I'm feeling. I'm, I'm feeling that, uh, I'm feeling offended. But the, the, the offense is because I want to be king. I want to be the president of this marriage, not your partner. And so he does some introspection. He does some repenting, as we're going to look at it in just a few moments. And then how crazy would it be if the wife in that moment also says, well, you know what, honey? I'm looking at my heart, too. And here's what, here's what my idol is in this moment. My idol is, I want freedom. I don't want your accountability. And I'm sorry for that, because we're partners here. We're accountable to each other. And so she might go through some things that she is aware of in her own life. And friends, this is how conflict gets resolved. It's when we're willing to look at the desires that have become demands. When we're willing to stop the attack, stop the defense, stop those strategies and walls that we put up between us and other people. And we begin to repent. We begin to get honest about what it is we're worshiping. That's when people grow. This is how people change. But as long as we're stuck with the walls, as long as we attack and defend, attack and defend, we're not going to grow, we're not going to change. Change comes as we look in our hearts and repent of our idols. So I've got a list of questions. You probably need to take a picture of this or maybe I can send it to you by email or something like that. But here are some wonderful questions you ought to uh, regularly ask yourself. Especially when you're in the middle of a fight or a quote-unquote situation. How am I judging people? How am I punishing people? What am I demanding to have here? What am I trusting in? 
know, going down the list, what am I always thinking about? What or whom do I fear? It's a great question. What are you afraid of, right? When you start asking that, you begin to find out what your idols are. What do I want to avoid at any cost? What would make me really happy? What would devastate me if I didn't have it? The reason we don't ask these questions is that we're not taking the time to go into the place where behavior starts. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart come the attacks and the defense and other things that we typically turn to. Well, is there any hope for us? Is peace possible? Yes, it is, but here's the prerequisite. So let's talk for a few minutes about the prerequisite for peace. In order to be a peacemaker, you must repent and believe the gospel. In order to be a peacemaker, you must repent and believe the good news, the good news of Jesus. Those are two sides of the same coin. But let's split them up and look at each one for a couple moments. First, repentance. James describes repentance in verses 7 through 10. Look at those verses. These are heart-searching, powerful, hard verses. James says, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. My goodness, I don't think our health, wealth, prosperity preachers talk about that very often, do they? Being wretched, being mournful, being... Weeping over your sin? See, repentance consists of several things. To repent means, first of all, to own up to those desires that have become demands. Repentance means to feel genuine sorrow, not just that you've hurt that other person, but that you've sinned against God. It means to hate your idol. It means to say to that idol, idol, the very idea that you would dare to occupy the place in my heart that God occupies. Get serious about that idol. It means making restitution or apologizing to another person if your sin has hurt them in any other way. That's why I said in that little scenario, the husband says to the wife, Honey, I'm so sorry that I'm using you. I want to win. Please forgive me. And finally, repentance means to turn away from your idols. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.14 even says to flee your idols. Turn away from your idols and turn to Jesus, the one who made you and who is jealous for your love. Jealous. Jealous. What's that about? Yeah, look at verse 5. Did you see this verse? James says, do you suppose it's to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? Now that is a very difficult Bible verse. You'll see a lot of different translations of it. But here's what I think it means. God made you for himself. He set you free from sin and death. He took your sins to the cross. He loves you. 
He is your husband. You are his bride. And when you give your heart to an idol, he burns with jealous love, just like a wife who has found out that her husband has been giving his heart to another woman, or like a husband who just discovered that his wife has been having an affair. Jealousy is a sign of love. So repentance means forsaking all others and turning again to the only one whose love will truly satisfy. So, name your idols, friends. Name them. Confess them to God. Ask Him to forgive you and to purify your heart. And perhaps the Spirit of God would even move you to weep over your sin, as it says there in verse 9. That's a good thing to do, by the way. Allow the Holy Spirit to help you to weep over your idolatry, if He so chooses. But don't stop with repentance. The flip side of the coin is to believe the good news. Believe the good news. You ask, what good news? Where's the good news here? Oh, it's there. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, But He gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Don't you love the word but in the Bible? Let's go ahead and say it. That's a big but right there. (laughs) I love the word but in the Bible. Have you been bowing down at the altar of lust? Yes, But God gives more grace. Have you been worshipping the idol of beauty or success or money or power or whatever it might happen to be? Yes, but God gives more grace. Have you been struggling with your alcoholism, with your depression, with loneliness, with fear, with worry, or you name it? But God gives more grace. He offers not condemnation, but grace. No matter what, God offers more grace. Why is that? Because of the cross. Because of the cross. The blood of Jesus which covers our sin and makes us new every single moment. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater. Than all our sin. And that is perfectly pictured for us here at this table. This table is a table of grace. These elements are means of grace. The bread signifying the body of Jesus that was broken and nailed to the cross for us. Jesus said, I broke my, this bread is the body that I've broken and given to you. And the uh, cup, of course, that symbolizes the blood of Jesus that was shed for you. Every month we come to this table. Why do we never get tired of it? It's because we continually need to be reminded that God loves us in Christ. That we are in Him. And that in Him we have more grace than we can possibly out So today I invite you to this table if you're a Christian. If you're someone who does weep over your sin. Who knows that you need Jesus for grace. 
Come to this table. Jesus invites you. He says, come to me all who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Is there anyone who should not come to the table? Yes. If you're not a believer in Jesus, don't don't take the elements. Simply pass them by. But ask God to give you grace. Uh, Is there anyone else who should not come to the table? Yes. If you do believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you know you're not in the place you should be with Him. These words about idolatry don't move you at all. You've got a hard heart. You want to hold on to your idol, and you're not willing even to be made willing to let it go. You're living in a hardened, rebellious state right now. You're engaged in a sin. You don't want to quit. And you're going to keep doing it no matter what. I would ask that you let the elements pass you by. You're not in a place where you should take this supper. But you should pray and ask God, God, give me more grace. As we receive these elements, just a couple of practical matters. We have gluten-free bread that's available for you. If you have a gluten allergy, here's the way that works. If you'll raise your hand and keep it raised, one of our elders will serve you personally gluten-free bread. And then when it comes to the cup, we have wine. But if you have a problem with wine for any reason, we also have grape juice. The grape juice is white. The wine is red. As you receive these elements, we would ask you to keep them with you and then wait till. Uh, everybody's been received that and we will eat or drink together. So let's bow our heads. The elders are going to come forward with their volunteers and let's ask God to be moving and working in our time together around the table. Let's pray. Father, how sorry we are that sometimes we give our hearts to other lovers. Forgive us, Lord, for our idolatry. Forgive how we turn desires into demands. We punish our loved ones. We judge our friends and our fellow church members. Forgive us, Father, that we have behaved contrary to the way of peace. But we come to the table today because we believe in grace. We thank you that you said there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. When we're honest, we know that we can not hide. We don't have to hide. Because you have taken care of the guilt already. You've washed our sins away in your blood. Thank you that your grace exceeds our sin and our guilt. So Lord, we thank you for the bread and the cup. And pray that this time together around this table will be something that will help us commune with you. Thank you. Pray to you. Enjoy you and enjoy one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.